Hello and welcome back to Not So Molly Mormon Podcast Minisodes. Today's email comes from Amara and I'm going to jump right in, but before I do, I want to give a quick content warning that there is discussion of transphobia and suicidal ideation. So listen with caution. Here we go. I am 42 years old. I was born and raised in the Mormon Church in Spanish Fork, Utah, and was a devout member until I was 29. I served a full-time mission in Northern California. I was married in the temple, and my wife and I have five beautiful children. I have always liked to learn and specifically loved learning all the juicy little tidbits about the church that I could. You know, all the obscure, barely taught nuggets. Unfortunately for me, and perhaps others, I listened to the church teachings blindly and accepted what they taught at face value and never questioned what all the conflicting information meant until much later in life. Under all of this, I was hiding a secret. I'm transgender. My birth certificate says I'm male, but from before age 7, I always thought I should have been born female. I was taught from as early as I can remember that my body was male because my spirit was male. I never felt it, but as a little kid, especially in the Mormon church, you are taught to question. Taught to never question. (laughs) I would play dress up with my sisters and would sneak into my mom's room to try on her pretty clothes. Playing with makeup was always fun. Then I turned eight and was baptized. I remember being absolutely terrified that I had to speak to the bishop and that I might not pass the test to show that I was ready to be baptized. Because as one of the many primary songs says, I can't wait until I'm eight for then I'll be baptized, you see. Oh, you guys, I still remember that. I can sing it. (laughs) Obviously, because most eight-year-olds aren't really able to understand what is actually going on, the test is easy and next to impossible to fail. After my baptism, I was no longer allowed to play dress-up with my sisters. I remember my mom and dad very carefully controlled my environment after that point in time. Toys, room decorations, wardrobe, and all other aspects of my life were made so there was no question in anyone's mind that I was a little boy. I was force-fed what I should and shouldn't like. My favorite color has always been hot pink. I quickly learned that that wasn't appropriate for a boy, and I was strongly encouraged to choose another color. The activities each of us were allowed to participate in were strictly controlled. We had to show everyone around us how righteous we were as a family. From that early age, I remember being taught very strict gender roles and that there could be no deviation from those roles. Through example and stern lectures, as well as the occasional spanking, our roles in life were enforced. My sisters were given the inside chores of dishes, sweeping, mopping, vacuuming, and laundry. I was given all the outside chores, mow lawns, trim bushes, clean sidewalks, clear gutters, take out garbage. I was even recruited by my dad to be his unofficial apprentice. Every Saturday and some evenings after school, I was taken with him to learn how to be a hard worker on a construction site as his electrician in training. At home, when I would express desires to learn how to cook, clean, sew, or many of the things I wanted to do, I was brushed off and told, maybe some other time. Over the next four years, until I turned 12, I was constantly being taught how to be a man. I was required to attend Cub Scouts weekly, where we learned all about camping, hunting, orienteering, and other manly things. 
I earned every badge possible with my parents holding my hand and coaxing me along the entire way. Sometimes I think the only reason I earned any of those awards was because of my parents. The knowledge I learned was great, but I had little interest in any of the topics. At age 12, I again met with the bishop and was interviewed to prove my worthiness to receive the priesthood. I knew I had to lie about anything pertaining to me being a girl. The firm view of the church against mixing gender roles was very entrenched in my mind. In this and every yearly interview with the bishop, I was filled with dread and fear that my lies would be discovered. They never were. Where is the discernment that is preached? For over 10 years of at least yearly interviews, not a single leader ever figured out what I was, that I was lying about my quote-unquote sins. First wearing girls' clothes, then theft, and eventually masturbation and pornography. In primary classes, we were taught that only a righteous holder of the priesthood could use it. Because it was God's power, he would condemn any person not using his power in a righteous way. As a child who didn't know better, I took that to heart and figured any priesthood holder that was over me must be righteous. Otherwise, God would have struck them with lightning or whatever else happens when God condemns you. The scriptures always show quick and complete destruction for the people that go against God. So, I received the priesthood. I know you have talked about the priesthood before on your podcast. If you are ever interested in more detail about the priesthood and how I was taught about it as a priesthood holder, I'd be more than willing to share. For now, I'll just say that I was taught each priesthood holder is only supposed to have authority over certain people and activities. For example, the average priesthood man with no calling has power and authority over himself and his family, no one else. Men receiving quote-unquote revelation that a girl they just met is going to be their wife is not the way it works. Until that girl is actually part of the man's responsibility, he cannot receive valid revelation for her. This is one of those things that isn't taught well in the church as a whole, and men, being power-hungry like they are, frequently skip over the subtle rules regarding priesthood to exert power they technically don't have. I have been lucky my entire life to have righteous priesthood leaders over me. They never abused their power with me. I was involved with an uncle that used his power to rape and otherwise mess up the lives of at least dozens of girls. Eventually, he was prosecuted when his granddaughters refused to give up on pressing charges. The church disveloped him, but still allowed him to return to the church multiple times while hiding his crimes from the world, until he was finally prosecuted and sent to prison. Wow. Back to my story. When I turned 13, my family moved to another little town in Utah Valley. The stress in my life over knowing I should be a girl and being forced to live as a boy came to a head. I dressed, more, I dressed up more frequently, and up to this point, I never gave up on the hope of living the life I should. I had seen a few things that gave me encouragement. One that sticks in my mind, even now, is a sketch on The Carol Burnett Show where she portrays a man that has an operation to become a woman. It was done for a laugh on the show, but was one of the many small things that gave me hope. I frequently secretly borrowed my mom's clothes to wear in secret and would sneak them into the hamper afterward. I even stole a couple of articles of clothing from the store because that was the only way available to me to express who I was. Of course, I had to keep all of this hidden from my family. I had learned enough that I knew nothing I was feeling was acceptable to the church. I never bore my testimony during this time. 
Looking back now, I had doubts and unconsciously couldn't accept that the church was true when its teachings were forcing me into submission over things that weren't in my power to control. Shortly after my 13th birthday, my parents caught me wearing some of my stolen clothes. I came out to them that I should have been born a girl. The term transgender didn't exist in my vocabulary. 1992 was not a trans-friendly time to grow up. After finding me, my parents spent the next couple hours lecturing me on the impossibility of a boy becoming a girl. They quoted scripture and church doctrine. They cut down everything I said and dissected it with the sanitizing laser of the church. My hope and will was broken. By the end of that lecture, they had thoroughly and completely destroyed any sense of self that I had had remaining. I was lower than low. I was completely worthless, and the only way I could gain worth was to live a perfect celestial life and give up ever thinking that I could be anything other than what they told me I had to be. I was told I had to be a strong, worthy male priesthood holder. Needless to say, I fell into depression. I seriously contemplated suicide multiple times. I was always too afraid to go through with it. If I decided to do it, I wanted something that would be sure to succeed. I was afraid of pain, so I didn't want anything that would hurt. I also didn't want to leave a mess for others to clean up afterward. So I turned inward. No one in my life understood what I was going through. I became one of the most introverted, non-social people you have ever known. I was forced to live a life that I hated. I went to Boy Scouts. I earned all the badges, again with a lot of pressure from my parents. I was an Eagle Scout with four silver palms. I lived life like a robot, doing exactly what was required of me. I spent all my time reading. I mentally escaped into the world of fantasy, lived through the many stories I read. I locked away all emotion because men aren't allowed to have emotion. Puberty hit me hard. I went from being the second smallest kid in my grade to being a massive 275-pound, 5-foot-10-inch man by the summer after I turned 14. I grew so fast that I have stretch marks all over my body. The girl buried deep inside hated everything about my body. I could barely stand to look in the mirror for more than a second or two. I had a furnace of rage that would occasionally burst open explosively before being tamped down and hidden deep inside. I did get brief glimpses of happiness in middle school, where a few required classes taught basic cooking, sewing, and other life skills. Otherwise, I wallowed in misery. I started high school. I had no friends. Classmates were the only people that I had to associate with. I made myself as close to invisible as a person that has to inter interact with others can be. I never volunteered in classes. I never participated a single extracurricular activity. I never went to a single school-sponsored game of any kind. I became a listener. I listened to anyone and everyone around me. I very rarely would speak unless called on. Through all the information I gleaned listening to all these conversations, I would get glimpses of the life I knew I should have but knew I never could have, sorry, <laughs> but knew I never could have because, quote, God made my body male and no power on this earth could ever change that. The robot I became lived what my broken sense of self saw as the perfect life. I graduated high school with a 3.95 GPA. I graduated all four years of seminary. I went to every church activity I was aware of. I went to every fireside. I was the perfect little Mormon boy as far as anyone could see. 
After graduating, I went to BYU for a year of school before going on my mission. Just like high school, my college life was one of the, was just one of classes and nothing else. I lived at home so I could save money to pay for my mission. I went to classes, went to work, and went home. I was alive, but I wasn't living. My mission was an interesting insight into how to, to manipulate people into joining the church. All leadership ever worried about were numbers. How many doors did you knock on? How many people did you talk to? How many of those people were you able to bring up church doctrine with? How many return appointments were you able to schedule? How many appointments did you keep? How many baptisms did you have scheduled? I did what I was supposed to, but never shook the feeling that my mission amounted to nothing but a numbers game. Being the perfect robot I was, I followed all the rules we had, which included schedules down to the quarter hour. We woke at 6.30, we had an hour of personal study, an hour of companionship study, and 30 minutes to shower, get dressed, and eat. We were supposed to be out of the apartment by 9. We got an hour for lunch and an hour for dinner. We were to be in the apartment by 9.30. We would call and report numbers for the day and then in bed by 10. All other time was actively spent trying to spread the gospel. The politics within the mission between companions, other companionships, district leaders, zone leaders, mission president, ward leaders, and ward members created a kaleidoscope of interactions that affected everything. Rewards could be given or taken away. Things like having the favored area to preach in or being given the slums where gunshots and drug deals were frequent, or were frequent occurrences. Having a car to drive could be both a blessing and a curse because a weekly wash and wax by hand was a requirement and was inspected frequently. It was impossible to feel a sense of connection with anyone. Transfers happened every six weeks. The night before transfers were to occur, you might get a call or not. If you did, the next morning you were to be packed and ready to be moved to the new area. You lost all contact with members, companions, and investigators. With the internet not being readily available at the time, phone and snail mail were the only viable options. Over the course of my 24-month mission, I was with a total of 18 different companions, each a unique person with different ideas, hobbies, work ethic, church knowledge, hygiene, and etc. One experience that stands out from the many brainwashing manipula manipulative things that happened is when my companion and I were stopped as we were biking down the road. We started a conversation, and then the people who had stopped us pulled out a gun, took our bikes, and rode away. The only thing the church did was allow us to call our parents to inform them they needed to file an insurance claim for a stolen bicycle so we could get some money to replace the stolen bikes. Even though I was like a robot on my mission, it affected me in unexpected ways. One of the many rules as a missionary is no physical contact with anyone. The only exception is when giving a handshake. But I have always been a hugger. I love giving hugs and greeting to family and others. It took years after my mission before giving a simple hug and greeting no longer felt awkward and wrong. There are still situations now, 20 years later, that I feel awkward and uneasy about physical contact that to most people would be normal. After returning from my mission in April 2000, I was immediately bombarded with expectations. It was now highest priority that I get married and start a family. I returned to BYU and after two years dropped out. The stress of my inner turmoil kept increasing. All the stereotypical male tropes that were being forced on me just didn't jive with who I was. 
I was a girl. I was one that was beaten down, forced out of the picture, and forced to conform to other people's expectations. I was beaten down to a place that I couldn't even consciously acknowledge the girl inside. She was still the shattered core that defined me. I was still thrilled at the sight of a cute hairstyle or outfit. I unconsciously envied every girl around me that was able to just be. I still had a small stash of things that made me feel pretty, even though I had long ago crushed the conscious thought of why. Because of the reinforced teachings of the church, each time I felt a thrill, it was ruthlessly crushed, and I would mentally seek a way to repent and not allow that to happen in the future. I got a job and earned enough to buy a small house on my own. I moved out of the constant oversight of my parents. I joined a singles ward. Got to love the awkwardness of that situation. I had finally started the long journey to start healing. My parents fell in love with the idea of trek and were influential in organizing some of the first church-sponsored trek activities, which then spread like wildfire. They went on trek outings, I think, ten different times, including once in the dead of winter so they could get the full effect of the freezing death that some of the pioneers experienced. I was forced to go three different times. I hated every one of them. I never felt the overwhelming spirit, as my parents referred to it. I continued to live a lie with everyone around me and even with myself. From the age of 12, I lied to church leaders about worthiness, according to the Mormon church. I lied to get ecclesiastical endorsements for BYU. I lied in every weekly letter to my mission president. I lied to get into the temple. I lied to myself every day of my life. The temple, another topic I know you've discussed on the podcast, but I would be willing to share anything I can to provide a view of the temple from another side. I received my endowment before my mission and visited nearly every day for the two months before I left. After my, mission, I, after my mission, I was assigned as a temple worker for a short time while in the singles ward. I was one of the creepy guys that you talked to at the Vale. I would go to the Provo Temple for about four hours, two days a week. I did that for three months before stopping. As Sarah mentioned, speaking of her experience, I never felt comfortable in the temple. I only ever went because it was expected. Things became familiar, but never comfortable. I never understood the fanatical joy my mother expresses every time she mentions the temple. So back to me and the lies I lived. In addition to all the lies to church leaders and myself, I was also living a lie with my family. I was indulging in being myself. I had a couple outfits that I would rotate. I would get something, and then the mental guilt would cause me to put everything in the trash, only to be replaced the next time my core tried to force the acknowledgement of her existence. My inner core was slowly assembling the dust that it had been reduced to. All the while, my robot self was attending Singles Ward and every other church-sponsored event, only enforcing the imprisonment of the girl within. I continued to live in the fictional worlds of so many books. Every week, my parents had family dinner. Every week, I was pestered about when they would be getting grandkids. I was interrogated about every girl in my ward and received the fifth degree for every date that I happened to go on. Talk about boring, bland dates. Subconsciously, I wasn't interested in being the boy on any date. 
Falling back into the stereotypes from my youth, my core felt I should be the one getting asked, asked out, but the brainwashed robot knew I had to be the instigator and ask for each and every date. I was in a constant battle within myself. Six years of this stale existence, during which I came close to asking a girl to get married. We dated for three months. I know, total cliche, short Mormon dating period before proposal. But that isn't the story here. I was feeling that things were progressing and was thinking this might be the one. I had planned a picnic date and was going to discuss my feelings and see if she had any of the same feelings. She canceled the date the day of with no real excuse and I never heard from her again. Well, almost never. Close to two years later, I bumped into her at the grocery store. We talked a little and she explained what happened. Apparently, the entire time we had been dating, she had been preparing to go on a mission. She had discussed me with her bishop, and he instructed her to do exactly what she had. She was not to tell me that she was planning a mission because I might stop her from going. She was to cut off all communication and basically act as if our relationship had never existed. All emotions between us were gone, and we went, out, and we went our separate ways. There is so much that could be said about that event, but I'm really trying to stick to the facts as much as possible and not interject my opinions. In early 2006, I started dating a girl. She and her family were longtime family friends. I had never seen her as a romantic interest until this time. For the next two years, we dated off and on. My emotions were complex, and only now, 13 years later, can I explain them in an understandable way. My female core saw a girlfriend she wanted in her life forever. The male robot in me saw a cute girl that family and everyone I knew approved of, but because it was just a shell there, was no actual, there was no actual emotion there. I was still constantly under pressure from my parents and siblings to get married. My younger sister had gotten married in 2001 and had two kids already. What was my problem? So I proposed. Looking back now, it was a selfish move, but with all the lies that controlled my life, I felt I was doing the right thing. We were married in late 2008 in the Salt Lake Temple. She immediately wanted to start a family, just as the church instructs. Physically, my female core was unable to get my male body to perform fully. Hours and hours and hours on end of attempts, pills, everything we could think of. I was devastated. My robot body that was supposed to be all male was unable to perform the most sacred and holy of responsibilities. My wife felt rejected and unworthy because she must not be attractive enough. As a solution, we ended up adopting. We now have five beautiful children we received through the foster care system. Within a year after our marriage, both of us stopped going to church. We felt the church was still true, but never made time for church. In 2013, I made a discovery. One of the many books I read gave me something new. The main character was transgender. The robot enslaving my inner core started to crack wide open. I started questioning everything. The inner me started to revive and there was hope again. There were other people like me. There was hope that the little girl inside might have a fighting chance. I researched and read and discovered all I could about myself, I started to let the girl take conscious control. Obviously, there were problems. It was now 2015. After hearing about the Mormon church condemning and rejecting all LGBT couples and their children, I promised myself I would never return to the church. 
They were publicly calling me an abomination. I would never allow myself to be crushed and contained like I was before. I came out to my wife. She gave me an ultimatum. I'm not lesbian, she told me. If you want to do anything to transition, it will be without me in your life. How could you lie to me all this time? That is something that should be revealed before marriage enters the picture. Over the years, I haven't been going to church. I've opened my mind and been able to discover the many things that you discuss on this podcast. I discovered the CES letter that listed out and made me use my brain to analyze the information that I had learned my whole life rather than ignore the inconsistencies as I had been taught. I don't want to be a member of such a disgusting cult. However, my family still haven't come to the same realization. I don't wear my garments anymore, but I haven't taken the steps to get rid of them or to permanently remove my records from the church. Even though I've turned my back on the Mormon church, it still influences so many aspects of my life. I still live in Utah. The Mormon church's teachings destroyed my life. I lived as a shell of a person for 25-ish years because of their doctrine, and because their doctrine said that my life, my truth, was not valid. So I was mentally beaten into submission and forced to comply. As a child, the only other option that I knew of was death. As of right now, in 2021, I still have not started transitioning. I have many reasons. I'm afraid of what 42 years as a male has done to my body. Even with all the expensive surgeries required, will anyone ever be able to see me as the girl inside? What will happen to our five children if I force a split between my wife and I? My wife has relaxed some from her initial reaction, but stands firm that she doesn't want a lesbian relationship. We've had several discussions about our relationship. It isn't perfect. In primary, I was taught a story. Anytime we stray from the truth, the devil is able to wrap a silk thread around your heart. By repenting, we can break that thread and remove his control from our life. By frequently repenting, we are able to break the threads while they are weak. The longer we live in sin, and the more anti-Mormon information we consume, the more and more threads Satan is able to wrap around us. Eventually, the combined strength of those threads is so much that almost nothing can break the pull they have on your life. At this point, the devil is in control and you can no longer make your own choices. Knowing now that the church is all a lie, I like to change Satan and the devil in the story to the lies we accept as true. The Mormon church binds each of its members in silken cords that eventually give them absolute control over the members' lives. The church can make members do nearly anything because all those small threads have bound them so tightly that they can't make their own choices. Even once a person breaks loose of their control, threads remain and continue to influence thoughts and feelings. Thank you for reading my story. If you want to share this, feel free. You can use my name. I love the podcast and the truth you're spreading. Love, Amara. Oh, Amara, thank you for um, taking the time to write all that out. I'm sorry, you probably heard my voice break a couple of times in there. I was... um, I was getting very emotional and I just felt, I felt the emotion in this letter so strongly and I feel so honored that you wanted to reach out to us and that we could share this because I know this will help 
somebody who's listening. Um, again, thank you. Thank you all for listening. You're all the best. And be back soon. Bye.